Welcome. My name is Dr. Jonathan Vorse, and thank you for downloading our podcast today on Working the Word. Make sure you hit that subscribe button to receive new podcasts every week. Thank you for your support at jvorse.org and enjoy the message today. Bibles, please, and go to the book of Proverbs chapter 4 and verse number 23. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse number 23. And I want to talk to you today about, uh, uh, well, I've entitled it Sacred Selfie. I'm calling it Sacred Selfie, and I'll explain what that means here in just a few moments. But uh, if, if you're there, if you've got it, say amen. All right. Proverbs 4. And verse number 23. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy of being able to share your word. I pray that that the Holy Spirit, who is the great teacher, would just help me be able to share this word today. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 says this, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Will you read that with me, please? Let's read it together. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So you say to me, sacred selfie. So almost everyone in here knows what a selfie is. Our young folks know what a selfie is. Our middle-aged folks know what a selfie is. But some of our older folks, now some of them know, but most, you know, some of them may not. So here's what a selfie is. It's when you take your smartphone and you get and put it on the, on the photo thing, and you turn the photo around where you can see yourself in there, and maybe you have a friend or something like that, and so you've decided that you're going to take a selfie. Shall we demonstrate here? I'm going to take a selfie with my wife here, just like this, okay? There is a selfie with myself and Sophia and my wife, and I'll put it on Facebook later so you guys can see it and, th- and th- print it out and throw darts at it later, but that's a selfie. That's a selfie. That's what we call. And so what that picture caught was everything that was, uh, you know, in the view of that camera. And it's there for however long we want it to be there, probably forever since it's in the cloud, what they call the cloud, which is really just a big room with a whole bunch of servers in it, but they call it the cloud. And so that's called a selfie. So the message today is called Sacred Selfie. This is the camera. This is the camera. When we take the camera of God's Word and we put it out here and we let what's inside of the Word of God take a picture of what we are, what's inside of us, then we're calling that a sacred selfie. A sacred selfie. So the funny thing about selfies is (laughs) they can either be fun or painful. Right? Okay, let me demonstrate. Every morning when we get up and we look in the mirror, when we leave that morning, we have that picture of what we saw in the mirror of what we look like all day long. And you might leave at 8 o'clock. I promise you by 10 o'clock you still don't look like that. 11 o'clock, 12, in your mind you think you look that way, right? But you don't look that way. I don't look that way, you don't look that way. How many of you have went into the restroom maybe at your workplace about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon and looked in the mirror and was shocked at what you saw? I mean, you know, I mean, let's just get really real here. I mean, no, no we're not going to get that real. But you, you, you know, you know what I'm saying. Some, have you ever blown your nose and had a leftover? 
And you didn't know it was there and nobody was brave enough to tell you. And then you go look in the mirror and all of a sudden you're like, oh, Jesus. And your mind goes back to everybody that you saw. And then you go look at them and you're thinking, you should have told me about that. You should. Sometimes selfies reveal things to us that we are not aware of. That's the point that I'm trying to make. And sometimes when we take the Word of God and we allow the Word of God to shine back onto our life, we discover things about ourselves that we are not aware of. One of the most effective prayers I think that the Lord taught me to pray many, many years ago was a prayer like this. God, show me things about myself that others see that I can't see. If you want the Lord to open your eyes then that's a good prayer. And if you want to get closer to God and you want to walk closer to God, that's a great prayer to pray. Lord, show me things about myself that others see that I can't see. And a lot of times we can't see it because we're in denial. So if we take this sacred selfie, how do we take the sacred selfie? I mean, if, if God's Word is shining into our life, uh, then how do we take the sacred selfie? I, I heard something uh, yesterday. I thought it was so cute. There was this lady, she was, uh, Donna and I uh, met with her yesterday morning, we were talking with her, and she said there was this three-year-old, and she said it was storming, and it was lightning, and the lightning was flashing and all of that, and he ran outside in the yard, and every time the lightning would flash, he would lift his head toward heaven, and he would grin real big. And she said, his mother said, get in here, you're going to get struck by lightning. What do you think you're doing? He said, God wants my picture and I'm just smiling for him every time that the camera flashes. I thought that was cute. Well, what happens when God's word, which the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 119 and verse 105, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. What happens when God's word shines on our way? What happens when God's Word shines into our heart? What happens when God's Word shines into our life? There's something about the Word of God that will, that will surely light you up. And the thing about it is when God's Word comes into us and begins to light us up, then it reveals the dark corners of our lives. It reveals those dark places in our lives, and we begin to see things that we did not know was there. So how can I identify the things that I see? The Bible says, you know, the Bible teaches us that His Word's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We're talking about taking a sacred selfie. We're talking about allowing the Word of God to shine into my heart and into my life. So after the photo is snapped and I put it down and I measure my life by the Word of God, how can I do that? How can I, ident I identify the areas in my life that need work? I'm, I want to direct you to Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20 where the Bible is talking about false prophets. It says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. So in other words, they come to you, they look like there's something on the outside, but on the inside, if you open them up, on the inside, in the dark places of their heart, there's something totally different than what they're projecting. How many has ever met people like that? They dress up, they look good, they sound good, they act good, you think they're anointed, but then all of a sudden, as you get to know them and time goes on, you find out there are dark places in their heart, and all of what you saw was really just the facade, it was just the mask. How many's ever seen? Well, let me tell you something, God can see beyond the mask. 
God can see beyond the mask. He can, the Bible said he knows the very thoughts and the intents of our heart. And so here it says in verse number 15 of Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Verse 16, here's what the word says, Ye shall know them by their fruits. Don't tell me everything that you've done. Let me see the fruit of your life. People can show up and they can sing good and they can dance good and, and they can preach good and they can teach good and they can minister, but what kind of fruit is their life producing? The Bible said we know people by their fruits. And then it goes on, it says, Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Obviously not. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit. Somebody say good tree. Okay, and every corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. Somebody say corrupt tree. So there's two kinds of trees. They're both trees. They both look like trees. They both have leaves. They both have bark. They're both planted in the dirt. They look like trees. But the Bible said one is bringing forth good fruit and the other is bringing forth corrupt fruit. And here's what the Word says in verse number 18. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. It's impossible for a good tree to bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Why? Because the DNA of the fruit that is produced from that tree comes from the heart of that tree. Your life is producing something. Our lives is producing something. All of our lives is producing some kind of fruit. To be frankly honest with you, in my personal life, there are times when my life has produced good fruit and there are times when my life has produced not so good fruit. I'm being honest. And I think it's the same way with all of us. And so when we take the sacred selfie today, when we examine ourselves by the Word of God, then how we can, the, the selfie that we look at, the picture that we look at is the fruit that our life is producing. So when we look at our lives today, we ask ourselves the question, what kind of fruit is my life producing? And if my life is not producing the kind of fruit that I feel would be pleasing to the Lord, then I have to ask myself, what do I do if I don't like what I see? Here's what we have to do. We have a choice. And, and, and here's another question we need to ask ourselves. What are we going to do with what we know? I mean, being honest. If I'm looking at the fruit that my life has produced up to this point and I don't like what I see, then I have a choice. I can either let everything just remain the same and continue to keep producing that kind of fruit or I can make some adjustments in my life because the decisions that I made yesterday are reflected by the life that I'm living today and the life that I'm going to live tomorrow are reflected by the decisions that I'm going to make today. So when I take the sacred selfie of my life, if I'm not satisfied with what I see and I say, you know what, maybe I'm not producing as much fruit for Christ as I thought that I would. Maybe I'm not really exemplifying Christ the way that I should. If I take that sacred selfie and that's what I see, then I have to make some adjustments today so my tomorrow can be better than my today. That's the power of a sacred selfie. So, I can, I can choose to repent. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 10, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. 
Now, this passage of Scripture contrasts godly sorrow and worldly remorse, and godly sorrow is constructive, where worldly remorse is, remorse is destructive. And I think it's important to point out that both of them are working. That means they are in the process of trying to produce something. So if I allow godly sorrow, and when I'm, I'm not talking about living with guilt, I'm not talking about living under condemnation, I'm talking about God showing me something that I need to repent of, and that word repent means to turn and go in a different direction. There are many intersections in our lives as we go along. There are times when we need to make choices. There are times when we make wrong choices, and we have to repent of those wrong choices and ask God to help us get back on track. And so when we say we've repented and asked God to redirect our lives and get us back on track, that means we've turned and we have changed directions. Through the course of our life, there are many opportunities for us to go this direction or that direction or to the right or to the left or straight or, or just stand our ground. And what we need to do is we need to say, God, I need you to guide me. God, I need you to direct me. Direct my paths. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my paths. God, direct my paths, not only in the way of peace, but in the way that produces the best for your kingdom, where I can live in the blessing that the word of God says that I can have, where my family can live at peace, where they can live with the blessing of the Lord upon their life, and we can live under the favor of God. Listen, living in God's favor is a personal choice. God doesn't just say, okay, you're going to have my favor and you're not going to have my favor. And the way that we say that is, well, it happens for some people and some people it don't. That's not true. Some people made these, this type of decision and other people made that type of decision. That's the truth. We have to take responsibility for where we are. So, we choose godly sorrow, which works repentance, and that brings life, or we choose worldly remorse, and that's destructive, and that brings death. Now, before we get into the question of eternal security, which is what I'm going to share with you here in just a few moments, I'm going to give you some scriptures and let the Word of God answer some of our questions when it comes to the doctrine of eternal security, and that'll give you guys some things to talk about uh, when people bring up the subject. But before we do that, I just want to, I feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to kind of go down this other little track for just a moment. You see, the problem with a whole lot of people in the American church today is we like to live around the fringes of our faith. That means that we have one foot in the world, we might actually, or one foot in the church, we might actually have both feet in the church, but like Hunter spoke yesterday, we're sitting in the window and we can either fall in or we can fall out. Last Sunday, Hunter shared that with us. And that's what's happening with a lot of people today. They're right on the line. They're just pushing their faith just as far as they can. And just one step in the wrong direction is going to get them, uh, uh, they're going to uh, lose the relationship that they had with the Lord. And so, and so that's what's, there's so many people today, they're just living on the fringes of their faith. Let me give you a biblical example of that. The Bible says, let's talk about the Apostle Peter. The Bible said that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying. And it was the night that he was going to be arrested. There had already been what we call the Last Supper. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. And so Jesus had already said that some of you are going to betray me. And Peter had already told him, Lord, I'm not going to betray you. I'll give my life for you. And Jesus said, before that rooster crows or before the cock crows is what the Bible said, which is really trumpets, before the cock crows tonight, you twice have denied
going to happen. It's just not going to happen. I'm not going to deny you. And so they come to arrest Jesus. Peter unsheaths his sword, cuts off a guy's ear. Jesus, one of the soldiers' ears, Jesus reaches down, picks up the ear, puts it back on the guy that does a visible miracle, creative miracle in front of everyone and, 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 and tells Peter this has to happen. And then later on that night, the guy that was willing to unsheath his sword and cut off a guy's ear is the very same one that said, I know not that man. He was living on the fringes of his faith. As long as he was around the miracles, as long as he was around the outward manifestations of the presence of God, as long as he was in the presence of Jesus and everything was going well, that's fine. But when it got real, all of a sudden, I don't know that man. I've never known that man. And a lady looks at him and says, but you are a Galilean. Your speech betrays you. I don't know him. I've never known him. And the Bible said the cock crew, Peter woke up, spiritually speaking. And the Bible said that he went out because he was filled with sorrow. Later on, Jesus used Peter to help build the church. Listen, when we, when we fail, when we struggle with our faith, when we get to the point where, where we, we, you know, we have all of these questions and whatnot, and we feel like that God is done with us, and we feel like that we failed so bad that there's no way that there would be a path back, God doesn't give up on us. God, is, God will never give up on Listen to me. God will never give up on you. You might give up on God, but God will never give up on you. Never, ever, ever. So when we take this sacred selfie, and the reason that I want to talk about uh, this doctrine of eternal security, there's a couple of reasons. I've, I've had several people uh, that has been contacting me, it seems like over the last month or two, like about seven or eight people that have uh, contacted me and asked me questions about it and whatnot. And so um, uh, in this message on sacred selfie, I began to think, you know, this is a great place for us to talk about this when we take the Word of God and let it take a picture of our lives and then we look at the fruit that our life is producing, which is what that picture is. When we, when we do that, if we don't watch it, we'll, uh, we'll get to the point where we'll see things that we don't want to see and we'll say, well, that's okay, I'm going to heaven anyway. So the doctrine of eternal security is simply once saved, always saved. Some people uh, talk about that you can't fall from grace. That's another term that they use. And some people say, well, you can't lose your salvation. I guess that's kind of accurate. You always know where to go back and get it. So you can't really lose it. You know where to go back and, and, and get it. But there's some places in the Scripture that I want to talk to you about. Uh, some believe that it's impossible for us to lose our salvation uh, when we give our lives to Jesus. That once we give our life to Jesus, we can do whatever we want to, and then we're a Christian for the rest of our lives. No matter what. That's, that's what some people believe. And, and I'm not going to give you my opinion this morning. I'm going to let the Word of God answer this question, okay? Other people believe uh, that the Bible teaches that we can lose our salvation, necessitating the return to Christ and recommit our lives to Him. Some people say that you really didn't know God to begin with. That's what some people say, and that's kind of the cop-out because they, they really can't explain away the rest of the scriptures that I'm going to show to you today, and so their cop-out is, well, they just didn't get saved to begin with. 
Well, if that's true, then God's Word is a lie. Because God's Word says if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we can be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, either God's Word is true or it's not. And if I've done that, and then later on I found myself in a state of apostasy where I'm beginning to question, and then I decide that I no longer uh, believe in even the existence of God, then I've lost my faith. God didn't abandon me. God didn't turn away from me, but I jumped out of God's hand. I lost my faith. Now, what's the Bible say? Several verses, three of them that I'm going to share with you today, speak of God blotting or not blotting names out of the book of life. Now, let me ask you this question. Now, the blot, you know, that's where you just blot something out. How many of you, <laughs> we're going to date ourselves a little bit. How many of you remember the old typewriters? Okay, and then that paper mate stuff, when you made a mistake, you would, you know, take, take the little brush and put it in there and go like that. Now, I found a secret to that. You can't get it right unless you go, you've got to stick your tongue out in order to get that right. Okay, you remember that? Well, what, well, what you're doing is you're blotting out your mistake. So that's what blotting is, Okay. So, Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 5. Let's go there. Revelation, let's, let's lay our eyes on it. Let's lay our eyes on the Scripture. Let's let the Word answer this question. Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This is Jesus speaking. So, why would he say, I will not blot his name out of the book of life if blotting wasn't an option? You see that? So he said, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Then we go over to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22 and verse number 19. Here's what the Scripture says. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy... God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. The Bible said that God would take away his part, that's what the Bible says, out of the book of life. So that's a removal of someone who had part of the book of life. We're letting the word answer this question. That's what the Bible says, okay? And then we can go to Exodus chapter 32, verses 32 and verse 33, and that whole particular area there. We won't read it today, but you can write it down and read it later. And this is a story of where God had, was just spent with Israel. He was done with them because he had done so much for Israel, and Israel was still going after graven images and graven gods and other gods and things like that. And finally, Mo, finally, God told Moses, he, he said, if, he said I, I'm going to get rid of them. I'm just going to wipe them off the face of the earth. I want nothing to do with them. I'm getting rid of them. Getting rid of them. So Moses, the great intercessor for Israel, prayed, and he said, If thou wilt forgive their sin, but if not, blot me, I pray thee. Out of thy book which thou hast written. 
And then it says in verse 33, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. That's Bible. That's what the Bible says. So these references to blotting out of the book of life allow only two possibilities. Number one, Every person's name is written in the book of life the moment that they are born, and it's there for the duration of their life until such time as they find themselves in a state of apostasy where they have revoked their belief and they, they can no longer trust God and believe God, and so God would blot their name out of the book of life. So that's one line of thinking. The next line of thinking is that when people give their life to Jesus, that God puts their name in the book of life. And then later on, as they later on say, you know what, I've been serving God and I've been trusting God and I've been believing God and things aren't going the way that I thought that they would. And if God really loved me this and if God was really, really real that, he wouldn't have let this happen, he wouldn't have let that happen. And all of us have been there. All of us have had those thoughts go through our mind. It's when you, you know, it's, it's the thought that you embrace that gets you in trouble. And so when you embrace those kinds of thoughts and you become convinced in your heart that what you were believing concerning faith and concerning Jesus and concerning the cross and concerning Him being the Son of God, when you come to the conclusion that that's all just a fairy tale and you legitimately no longer believe it, then God blots your name out of the book of life. So that's the second form of thought. Neither one of these... Neither one of these fits Calvinism. Calvinism is the proponent of the doctrine of once saved, always saved. The first denies that God only intends to save a select few, the elect, and the second denies the eternal security of the redeemed. So now let's look at another scripture. What about Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6? For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good, good Word of God, and the powers of the world to come. Let's read that again, because that's a pretty good list, okay? I mean, that is a clear definition of someone who has made a clear choice to follow Jesus Christ. Let's read it again. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good Word of God, and the powers of the world to come. It's impossible for them if they fall away... If they shall fall away. So just that statement alone, if they shall fall away, is proof that people, after they have made this clear choice to follow Christ, it's proof that it's possible for people to fall away. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. So the apostle probably the Apostle Luke, was addressing Christians here, and he was endeavoring to keep them from finding themselves in the state of apostasy. The uh, apostasy is no longer believing, I don't believe in God. That's apostasy. The object was not to keep those who were awakened and enlightened from apostasy, but it was to preserve those who were already in the church of Christ from going back into what the world calls, or what the word calls, uh, perdition. So, 
Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 6 uh, in the message translation helps us understand it even better. It says this, If then they turn their backs on it, washing their hands of the whole thing, well, they can't start over as if nothing happened. That's impossible. Because if they do, they've re-crucified Jesus and they've repudiated Him in public. So what does this mean? Does this mean that if someone has come uh, into the knowledge of Christ? Does it mean that if they've been enlightened, if they've tasted the heavenly gift, if they've been partakers of the Holy Spirit, if they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they've lived that life and then all of a sudden they find themselves in a state of apostasy that there's no path back to God? Is that what that means? No. The Bible says and it clarifies that they would re-crucify the Son of God afresh. Here's what he's trying to say. It's not that they can't come back to God. It's that when they do come back to God, they have to come the very same way they came to begin with. Jesus does not have to die again. Jesus does not have to walk the Via Dolorosa again. He doesn't have to shed his blood again. None of that stuff. There's one sacrifice for sin for all of eternity, and that's the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world who entered the Bible specifically said one time into the holy place to obtain eternal redemption for you and me. So the only way to God is through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one can come to God uh, except through him. And so Jesus is the way. He's the truth and he's the life. Now the Bible also says that it's impossible for us to go back in what this is saying. And I've studied it extensively through the years. I had a friend many, many years ago that pastored a Southern Baptist church down the street from my church and we both drove school buses together and so what we would do is we'd drive back and forth and we would get into this theological discussions and I'm 26 years old and I'm trying to figure out if once saved, always saved is supported by scripture or not. I knew what the church said. I knew what our personal doctrine said but you know me. I want to know what the Bible says. And whatever the Bible says, that's what I'm going to go with every single time. Every single time. And so, and so, um, so we, we look at this thing, and, and, and as I was looking at it this past week, I'm like, God, I mean, I, I see all of these different scriptures, and I know that there's a whole lot of people that are talking about, you know, that we're, when we're in Christ, we're secure, and all of these kinds of things. And I started studying scriptures that talked about being in Christ, in Christ this, and in Christ that, and in Christ this, and in Christ that. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me. Listen to me, I'm going to make a statement. I want you guys to get this, okay? As long as you remain in Christ, you are eternally secure. But you have to remain in Christ. It's like this. You're in the palm of God's hand. And He's holding on to you. And He doesn't want to let you go. Because you're part of the body of Christ. And you're His prized possession. And He puts great value on you. But if you wiggle and wiggle and wiggle and wiggle and wiggle and wiggle your way out and jump out of His hand, then you're no longer in His hand and you're no longer in Christ. So that's the difference, okay? You can't lose your salvation because you know where to go back and get it. Okay? And God is not going and God is not going to cast you away from him. 
that you can jump out of his hand. If that was not an option, we would be no different than the angels. We choose God because we have a will. He gave us the opportunity to choose Him, and we have a will. And if He forced us to live for Him, then we would be an angel, a cherubim, or a seraphim, and we would have absolutely no choice. Every single day, you have a choice on whether you're going to live for God or not. Now, let me say something else too, because I feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to say this. It's a whole lot harder to leave God than what you think it is. The only criteria for losing your faith is if you absolutely actually do that, you lose your faith. You no longer believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died on Calvary for you. We have to believe that He's the Son of God and they died on Calvary for us in order for our faith to stand strong. So when we give our life to Christ and if we jump out of God's hand and we go down the road of apostasy and we find ourselves coming back to God because we all of a sudden have them, those enlightening moments where we know that God is real and He is who He says He is and we are who we say we are and so we want Him involved in our life again. When we do that, when we come back to God, we have to come back to God through the same blood, through the same cross, through the same sacrifice of Jesus, but our starting place is different. When we become born again, our starting place is different because now we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've lived and sensed His presence. We've had the effects of His Word working and operating in our life. None of us are perfect. There's none righteous. No, not one. You're made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Every single one of us have to make the choice to not let sin reign or lord over us in our mortal bodies that we will fulfill it in the lust thereof. Absolutely none of us are perfect until the blood's applied. And then through the eyes of God, we're perfect in His eyes. It doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that we don't make wrong choices. It doesn't mean that we don't have challenges. We're all human. We were created by God to be inquisitive. We were created by God to have questions. We were created by God to ask the hard questions and to make ourselves available for various answers. And that's why it's important for you and for me to make sure that we allow the gift and the spirit of discernment to flow freely in our lives. God's a God of restoration. Now, Joel chapter 2, verses 23 through 27, is a powerful passage of Scripture. And in that passage of Scripture, we find where Israel had totally left God. Once again, Israel had left God. They did it with Moses earlier. But once again, Israel had totally left God. I mean, just done, and God was done with them again. Just, and then they come back to God, and the Bible says here, and Joel chapter 2 and verse 25, and I will restore to you, to you the years that the locust had eaten, the cankerworm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And so we see God bringing restoration to that which had been destroyed. Once again, we see that Israel, who loved God, 
at one time and served God, had fallen away from God, and now they've come back to God, and God is in the process of restoring. The fact that God is a restorer is an admission that sometimes there are people that, that our lives become broken. Think about that. Think about that. Okay. Now, so the conclusion that we have, we have just a couple more scriptures, but the conclusion that we have here is that everything rises and falls on our faith. Either we believe that Jesus is Jesus or we don't. Either we believe the message of the gospel or we don't. There are some things that will never be, there are some questions, let me put it like this, there are some questions that will never be answered this side of heaven. If we were able to get all of our questions answered, what would be the purpose of faith? I don't serve God for what He can do for me. I serve Him because of what He done for me 2,000 years ago. And had He not come and died on Calvary and this relationship with Him was available, I would serve Him for the relationship. If when I died, that was over. The relationship is worth it. The relationship that you have with God is worth your time. It's worth your effort. It's worth allowing God to be a part of your life. Now, when we take this sacred selfie, we're trying to bring this in for a close, but when we take this sacred selfie and we measure ourselves by the Word of God, I have a little scripture here that will help us. Psalms chapter 19, verses 7 through 10. There are six words here that I want to point out. And here's what it says. The law, somebody say the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law was given, the Bible said, to be our schoolmaster. So in other words, the law was given to teach us how to ascertain the difference between right and wrong. It's our schoolmaster. So the law was given, for the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The soul is the seat of the mind and the will and the emotions. So this mechanism that God put in the earth, and we understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. He satisfied the law. And so we look back at it as our schoolmaster more than an active part in our life. It's where we learn from. And so we look at that mechanism where the law, the opportunity for us to determine the difference between right and wrong is what causes us to be converted, causes our soul to be converted, our mind, our will, our emotion. And so the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And then the second word is the testimony. Somebody say testimony. testimony. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In other words, God says, when I get through jacking you up from the floor up, you're going to have a testimony. You're going to be able to tell somebody about what I did for you. And then, verse number 8, the statutes of the Lord are, are right. The statutes of the Lord... Speaking of the statutes of the Lord would be more like the foundations of the Lord or the things that we hold on to that we live by, the foundations of our life, the biblical foundations of our life. The Bible said if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? So I'm not a big proponent of just chunking everything and then just saying, okay, God, do this, this brand new thing and we'll just forget everything else. I'm not a big proponent of that. I need to be very careful here because I don't, 
I'm going to go down this road very quickly, and I, I don't want anyone to misinterpret me, and because I'm going quickly, we run the threat of misinterpretation. So please understand this is coming from a very good place in my heart. I've been studying the millennial generation, Generation Xers. They're the largest generation on the face of the earth. There's more in that generation than any other generation alive today. And only 11% of them see enough value in church to attend church on Sunday morning. So I've been studying, how do we reach them? Listen, I love them. You say, why do you love them so much? Because my kids are that generation, that's why. And I'm their daddy, okay? And, and, I, and I get these young people around me, and I love them like they're my kids. And I, I, I was thinking yesterday, and this morning I was praying, I woke up this morning and I was praying, and I was asking God, you know, God, where did we lose our way with this? And, and it's like the Lord spoke to me, and here's where you're going to misinterpret if you don't watch it. It's like the Lord spoke to me, and He said, the generation that came before them, their mothers and their, grandfa and their grandmothers and grandfathers, didn't see the value of making commitment to Sunday school and different things like that. They were too busy living their life and they thought that was more important. And so now we have a generation of people who don't even know who Noah is, who don't even, even know who Gideon is, who don't even know Samson. They don't know any of those stories. And what they do know is what they saw in Hollywood. So it's not their fault that they're faithless, it's ours. The Lord's been challenging me. Fix it. Somebody has got to take responsibility for what has happened to this generation. And they have to put themselves on the line. And they have to say, you can go to it and, and, and be careful. I want to be careful here because I don't want you to misinterpret me because God can anoint anybody. But we're wondering why they're going to a 20-year-old's church who's the pastor and they're getting taught theology that's that deep and emotion that's that wide. You know why? Because the 20-year-old's theology is only that deep. And they're big on emotion. So let's bring in the lights and let's Let's do all of the calisthenics and let's get the emotion going and all that kind of stuff. And when it comes time for the Word of God, let's give them 15 minutes to give us a little sermonette and we're going to live on that for the rest of our life. That's our fault. That's our fault. So I said, God, give us an inroad into this generation. I love music. You know, I'm a musician. I, I love to play music. I love to sing. I'm a little more old school than these guys, but I love it. I love it. I like the lights. I love technology. I, I love the, the modern technology. I love that. Let me tell you something. All the flash in the pan and all the fizzazz that we can muster up will not hold a generation like good, strong, theological, doctrinal teaching. So I ask God, so I asked God, I said, where's the hope for this generation? And almost as soon, it's like God knew I was going to ask the question, imagine that. So almost as soon as that question came out, God spoke to me. He said, there's great hope for this generation because they are, they are prone to community. They love community. They've had their heads buried in their phones 
all of their growing up years. They've had their heads buried in the video games all of their growing up years. And the only connectivity that they have experienced is what they have done digitally through all of these things. And there's a craving inside of them to want to sit down over a cup of coffee and look at a real person in their eyes and have a real conversation about the meaning of life. And God spoke to me and he said, that's how you reach them. He said, you invite them to the community of faith. You invite them to that. And you don't back up. And you don't smooth things over. And you don't try to attract them with trying to make everything seem so easy, so easy, so easy. They'll see right through you. They want the raw truth and nothing but the truth. Help me, God. With men, things may seem impossible, but with, with, with God, all things are possible. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment, the word commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, which is irrevocable trust. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And verse 10 says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. In today's vernacular, that would have been sweeter also than Dunkin' Donuts and Krispy Kreme and Starbucks and all of that. What he was saying was when you communicate the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and people begin to take it in, it's more important to them than things that sustain their life. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, this is where this generation is. They are hungry and they're going to a place where they can be fed because when they go into the other churches where there are people that, that I, I need to be careful here to, to again, but they find but some of our older saints, you know, we we do what we do. We find fault with them. Be well, you, you're not, you know, you're simple. When I was your age, I was this. And when I was your age, I was that. And the, the climate that they're in is not the same as the climate that we found ourselves in. Things have changed. I challenge you this morning to love this generation. I challenge you to help me reach them. I challenge you to find some of them and befriend them and engage in community with them, engage in conversation with them and help them discover Christ. So, when I take my sacred selfie, there's a few questions I need to ask myself. We're closing with this. The first question that I need to ask myself is, okay, Lord, when I examine the fruit from this selfie, am I really living for God? That's my first question. Am I really living for God? Is it just fake? Is it a facade? Or am I really living for God? The second question is this. Am I a, quote, practicing, unquote, Christian? One who lives by the principles of God's holy word. And then the third question is this. Is God pleased with me? How do I know if God's pleased with me? Well, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, shares with you seven things that displeases God. Go there later this week and read those seven things and ask God to not let you be involved in any of those things. Because the Bible says they don't just displease Him, that He hates them. And the seventh one, which is those that cause division among brethren, is an abomination to God. That means it's something that God can't stand. God's not into cliques. He 
He's not into cliques. We're all the family of God. So my options are these. I've taken this selfie. I've measured myself by the Word of God. I see the fruit that my life is producing. Now, here's my options. I make excuses about my non-productive lifestyle for the kingdom or I make adjustments and ask God to help me. Now, I don't know about you. I want God to help me. I don't want to make excuses. I want to please Him. I want to live a life that's pleasing for the Lord. My sweet little daughter Susie came to me this past week and she said, Daddy, you have to slow down. She said, all you ever do is work. You work in the daytime, you work in the morning, you work at night, you get up in the middle of the night and work, you just work all the time. Dad, you have to slow down. And I looked at her, I said, well, it don't feel like work. And then she said, well, what happens if you get to the end of your life and you look back and you say, it was all work and no play. And I said, honey, when I get to the end of my life, I want to turn, turn around and look and say, we won that one to the Lord. We helped that one come into the fulfillment of their calling. We trained that one to be a pastor. We trained that one to be an evangelist. We trained that one. I told her, I said, that's my life. That's when I look at my life. When I take that sacred selfie of my life at the end of the road, I want to have been able to invest in people like you and watch you and rejoice with you and encourage you and strengthen you and watch you grow into the productive Christian that I know is inside of you and that God knows is there. Now she did have a little bit of a point because the real translation was Daddy, I need some daddy time. And so we do things to make that happen. But we have to make excuses or we have to ask God to help us. I want us all to stand to our feet. Come on, let's do that. Thank you for listening to Dr. Jonathan Vorse on Working the Word. We appreciate your love and support. Visit www.jvorse.org to give a gift today. Don't forget to subscribe and enjoy the rest of your day. Always remember, the Word will work if you work the Word. Be blessed.